you have your Bibles, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Stephen's got some, Greg's got some in his hands. and uh, Get one right to your seat. If you don't own a Bible, consider it a gift. Take it at yours. If Stephen tries to charge you for it, don't pay him for it. (laughs) Matthew chapter 4. Matthew writes, starting in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The title of my message this morning is dealing with temptation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to open up your word, knowing, Lord God, there's power in your word as your Holy Spirit teaches us as we dig into your word. Things that we need to hear this morning from you personally. Things that you want to do in our lives, areas that you want to work on in our lives. Lord, as we gather together, Lord, uh, we're here to hear from you. So we pray, Lord... That we'd have ears to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. That we would uh, be alert to that, Lord. Not that we would look that, uh, oh, this would be good for someone else to hear. But, Lord, what do I need to hear tonight or this morning from you, Lord? And so I pray that you'd bless our time together. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart to you. Lord, they're not born again. They, they've not had their sin forgiven. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today, we pray. So we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many of you know that my dad passed away when I was only three, almost four years old. And uh, my mom raised all six of us kids. Now, every summer she'd want to plan a very good vacation for us, a great vacation. And usually that meant we'd rent a beach house for a week or two, even a month at a time. We've done that. But this one year, I was about 11 years old and... uh, she rented a motorhome. Now, we've never done that before. And, and I remember telling her, no, let's do it, Mom. I'm old enough. I can help. I know how to work these things. And, and so we did it. So we got in the motorhome. We drove up to Las Vegas about three hours, four hours away from where we lived and spent the night there and then decided we were going to go from there across this highway called Highway 58 in California. From those of you in California, if you've ever been on that, you know what that's like going towards Pismo Beach. I mean, it's like this long, winding road in and out and in and out. And, and uh, you know, my little brother and my sister spent most of that ride in the bathroom there in the motorhome just, you know, puking up their guts. 
So after two days, we finally arrive at the Pismo Beach campground. Mom says, okay, we need to hook up the sewer. I volunteer. I know how it works, Mom. I'll do it. So I crawl into the motorhome, find where the sewer hookup is, and I take off the cap. You're not supposed to take off the cap until you push the little valve and it shuts the little thing there. And so I was plastered with two days worth of sewage and throw up. And I tell you, you never saw an 11 year old run so fast to the showers. Three days later, I came out of the showers. I was like, I turned this out. It was, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. So I bet you're wondering, how am I going to tie this into a message? Listen, when we try to resist temptation, Without reading the instructions how we can get ourselves into a real stinky mess. I failed to read the instructions. I failed to read before moving the cap. Make sure the valve was turned off and such. I reap what I sowed. But listen. The Bible is our instruction manual for life, so to speak. When we read it and we apply it, uh, God's instructions, we have victory. The problem is that we so often fail to read the instructions, and we end up getting dumped on. But if we take God's Word, take the time to read God's Word, apply it to our lives, everything works the way it should. In fact, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, everything that we go through in this life, the problems that we face, God has given us His written Word on how to deal with it, how to face it, how to work through these things. Not only that, Jesus has set us an example on how we should live. I mean, if you have kids, you know, it's easy for children to learn from our example, be it good or bad. Where did he learn that from? Well, learn it from you, dear. (laughs) Okay, I I see it, you know. See, sometimes it can be a good thing or a bad thing. read a story about a young boy whose father was teaching his son what a a Christian should be like. And and, uh, when the lesson was over, the dad got a lesson he would never forget. The little boy asked, Dad, have I ever met one of these Christians? Ouch. See, it's a good thing that Jesus left us an example. In fact, Jesus said in John thirteen fifteen, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. First Peter 2, verse 21 and 22 tells us, For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. See, we can learn a lot by watching what he did. Jesus set the example. He showed us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He showed us how to become a servant in washing the disciples' feet. He showed us how to love when he gave his life for us. And this morning we'll see how he showed us how to deal with temptation. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. Number one, the spirit leading. Number two, the devil tempting. And number three, the believer's victory. I couldn't find an ING word for number three, and so that's you just get what you get. <laughs> Let's sort of set the scene about what's happening here. Jesus was now ready to begin his public ministry, but before that would take place, he had to go through two important steps of preparation. The first one was he needed to be baptized, and the other is what we're reading about this morning, the temptation in the wilderness. If you recall, back in chapter 3 last week, we, we looked at the scribes and the Pharisees came to John the Baptist as he was baptizing. Uh, but John doubted their motives. 
And he thought, man, these guys are not really here to be baptized. They're here just to scope it out and check it out and see if it's going to create any problems with, with the establishment back in Jerusalem. So John's sermon to them was a little more unique. He said, brood of vipers, or in our language, you slimy snakes, you know, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. And then he said, don't start thinking that just because you're descendants of Abraham that you're off the hook. God can raise up descendants out of these rocks. And we looked at how it was just because your, your mom was a Christian or your grandma was a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian. You have to give your life to Jesus Christ, surrender to him yourself. So John created a little bit of friction within that group. But then to his surprise, Jesus comes walking up into the Jordan River, into the waters to be baptized by John. And, and, and John's going, whoa. I should be baptized by you, but you, you want me to baptize, you want me to baptize you. And Jesus says, John, I want you to permit this to be so, to fulfill all righteousness. And we looked at how Jesus was baptized to identify with sinful people. That's why he came. To identify with us, to take our sins away, and that, that baptism was, was a prefigure of that. Now it says, look at verse 16 and 17 of Matthew chapter 3. It says, when Jesus was baptized, says that, that the heavens were open, that when he baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was an action from God to show God's favor upon this moment. The Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon Jesus, the Father's voice, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is involved here. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with Him. That was chapter 3. The heavens were opened. Chapter 3. Now we come to chapter 4. Different dynamic going on in chapter 4. Heavens opened in chapter 3. Hell is opened in chapter 4. Doors of heaven one minute. The doors of hell are open the next minute. As Satan himself is coming to tempt Jesus. Now this brings us to our first point. The Spirit leading. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now stop there for a moment. That word led has the idea of being led by the hand. You know, like you take a child and you lead them by the hand. In a parallel passage in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, a different Greek word is used that means to drive, which is why some translations say that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Now it doesn't mean that Jesus went unwillingly, but it does indicate that this showdown with the devil is not by accident. It, it's pre-planned. We should think of it this way. The Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness, through the wilderness, and out of the wilderness. There was never a, a moment when, when, he, when he left Jesus. The chief inspiration in Jesus' life is the Holy Spirit. May that be said of all of our lives this morning. We are, we are led by the Spirit. I mean, there are a lot of options out there, a lot of things that can inspire us. I mean, I've looked back in, in my life and the peers that have inspired me. I've, I've been inspired by great musicians, great Bible teachers, Bible scholars. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the main inspiration in our life today? And the Lord Jesus should be and desires to be our chief inspiration in our life. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was led by the Spirit. Now that doesn't always mean when we're led by the Spirit that, that we're going to always encounter smooth sailing and, you know, the sky will always be blue, you know, you, you'll never run out of gas, never get a flat tire, you know, your life will all be sunshine and roses. No, being led by the Spirit is listening to the Lord. 
to the direction he is leading, trusting whatever direction he's leading you, it's for your own good. And he has a purpose and a plan behind it. Now this brings us to point number two, the devil tempting. Look at all of verse one now. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's interesting to note that the temptation in the wilderness happened immediately after Jesus being baptized. Doesn't it seem that often after the blessings come the battles? Often the temptations come after great times of blessing. You know, you have a, a great VBS week and you come home and maybe, you know, the, the refrigerator is leaking all over your floor or something. Or some, some trial happens, you know, some, something happens and it's horrible. You go, oh, man, I can't believe this is happening. You had this great time of blessing. Because Satan wants to get in there and wants to rob you of your joy. And it was after this great blessing in the life of the Lord, after his baptism, that the temptation came to do the wrong thing. One man put it this way, after the dove came then the devil. I think it's a principle we've all learned in school. It was Isaac Newton who coined the phrase, every action brings an equal and opposite reaction. Every action in heaven brings a reaction in hell. So as heaven was opened, now hell is opened. And look at it this way, tonight you go home, maybe after the baptism, turn on your, your porch light, go back inside, then wait about 20 minutes and go outside again and stand underneath it. You'll notice something. You'll see the light shining in the darkness, but you also see a lot of bugs surrounding that light. And some of them are nasty, gnarly-looking bugs. Big bugs. Uh, the bugs that can carry away small children. You know, it's like, oh, this is gross. In the same way, when God turns His light on, the bugs come out, so to speak. When that powerful force permeates the darkness, it's unleashed, released Satan and his minions and his demons are, are right there. They're going to react. It's just a principle in the life of believers. The more business you do with God, the more business you're going to do with the devil. It's just a fact of life. Now, don't let that scare you. It's just a fact of life. Nothing promotes the, promotes the activity of the devil more than your proximity to God. The closer you get to God, when you say, God, I'm going to seek, seek you. I, I want to live close to you. I, I want to be used by you. Don't think that Satan is going to give you a standing ovation with that one. Don't think that the minions in hell are going to go, man, let's cheer that commitment on. That's great. No, they're going to go, oh, really? Really? Well, let's just see about that. But let me assure you, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You don't have to be afraid of your enemy. You're dealing with a defeated enemy. He lost. You're fighting not for victory. You're fighting from victory. You have the victory in Jesus Christ. So rather than trying to, you know, embolden yourself, oh, I'm going to fight the devil, why don't you, you know, just do what Jesus did. Just say, Jesus, you take care of it. Devil comes knocking at your door, say, Jesus, answer it for me. And he will. So we see here, after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now let me say this, temptation is not a sin. You know, it's not the bait that constitutes temptation. It, it, it's the bite. You know, you know, you just have the bait dangling in front of you. That doesn't mean you've sinned. But what you do with that determines whether you've sinned or not. Now look at verse 2. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now stop there for a moment. When did Satan attack Jesus? Number one, after the, the blessing, after the baptism. But number two, he attacked him when he was the weakest. Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and the Bible says, and he was hungry. 
Let's talk a, bit, a little bit about fasting. First of all, what it's not. It's not a sanctified diet, okay? It's not a, a spiritual way to, to lose weight. Oh, I think I'll try the Bible diet and I'm going to you know, fast for a couple of days. That's not what it's about. Secondly, it's not a way to manipulate God to get what you want. Okay, Lord, I've been praying and praying for this thing to happen in my life and, and now I'm fasting so you really have to give it to me now. That's not it either. Fasting is simply a means by which you deny your bodily appetite, your flesh, something that it craves, and you draw near to God in prayer. So every time your tummy rumbles, as Winnie the Pooh would say, you pray. That's the second part in fasting, denying our flesh. Number two, focusing on the spiritual things. We don't have time to, to look at it, but if you look at it up on your own, Isaiah chapter 58 and glean those principles about godly fasting, and that'll help you to know what it's there for and, and, and such. But Jesus, we read, had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I have to admit, I've fasted a few times, and, and it's, it's a difficult thing to do. If you've done it, you know what it's like. Like for the first day, it's a killer. The second day, it's like intolerable, and, and as soon as it's over, it's like, give me five cheeseburgers, okay? I, I'm ready for it. But I'm told, and I've never made it this far, but I'm told that if you keep fasting and withhold food from your body for a prolonged period of time, you eventually get to a place where you're not even hungry at all and you can deal with it. Your, your stomach has shrunk, your body's feeding off of itself, essentially. But you don't have that deep-seated hunger like you did at first. But then when the hunger reemerges, like it did here with Jesus, it's an indication that you're now starving to death. So after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is now starving to death because we read that it says he was hungry. The hunger emerged. Now when does Satan attack him? Not just after the blessing, but when he's most vulnerable, when he is at his weakest level physically. And the same thing he does in our lives, but we don't have to give in as we will see. This brings us to the first attack by Satan coming with his first temptation. Look at verse 3. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now I'm told that in the Judean wilderness, there are millions of these round limestone type rocks that just so happen to look like these little loaves of bread. No doubt as Jesus fasted, they must have taken on that appearance. And I can just picture that sourdough bread, you know, just that you, maybe you get it at Panera, you know, that it's crunchy on the outside and you break it open and it's warm on the inside. You put that butter on that. It's just so good. I'm making you hungry, aren't I? I should bake some bread. But then Satan comes to him at this point and says, hey, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Listen, that would have been no big deal for Jesus to do that. The temptation had to be really strong. He goes, here's my bread. What was the enemy doing, though? He was questioning the Father's provision. See, during Jesus' baptism, God identified him as his beloved son. Now Satan comes on the scene and challenges the very words that God has spoken. Satan appealed to the body, to the desires of the flesh. There's no sin in being hungry. Yet Satan suggested that if Christ were God's son then God wouldn't let you be hungry. See, Satan always wants us to think that God is holding out on us. The suggestion is, well, God must not love you. If he did, then he would take better care of you. You know, if you're really the son of God, then why are you hungry? When is God going to release you from this fast? If you're, if you're the son of God, why is this happening to you? 
And Satan comes to us in the same way and says, well, if you're really a Christian, where's God's provision? You better do something on your own. God isn't going to provide for you. What about that bill you can't pay? What about that job you don't have? What about that husband that you want or that wife that you want or the baby? I thought God said he was going to provide for you. See, the enemy comes and wants us to rebel against God and try and do something in our own flesh and our own power. Even though God would have us oftentimes be patient and wait on the Lord and to seek for His kingdom and His righteousness. See, we are God's children and He promises to meet all of our needs as we pray for our daily bread. But we need to wait. The problem is most of us want to get to the promised land without ever going through the wilderness. But God says it's a time for preparation. Wait, don't panic, you'll get there. Jesus was not about to push or rush the Father by taking things into His own hands. See, for Christ to use His divine powers out of the will of God, it would be a defeat. Because John 8.29 says that Jesus always did what pleased God. How often do we settle for second best because we try to do things in our own energy instead of waiting in God's perfect timing? I love Jesus as the answer to the enemy in verse 4. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, feeding the inner spiritual person is far more important than feeding the physical. But I love he says, it is written. There's our defense and offense against the enemy. We'll look at that more in a moment. But this brings us to the second temptation. Look at verses 5 and 6. Well, then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Here Satan brings Jesus to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and, and says to him in verse 7, If you are the Son of God, or a better translation is, Since you are the Son of God. He knew who he was. He says, Throw yourself down. Now check this out. The devil begins to quote Scripture. He says again in verse 6, For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and uh, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Listen, it's important we understand that the devil can quote Scripture. But it's vitally important that we need to understand this also. He's quoting it out of context and he's leaving out a part of Scripture. I mean, that's, that's the way false teachers are anyway as well. You know, they quote it out of context and they leave out certain parts. Satan is actually quoting Psalm 91, but he's leaving out a very important part. Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12 says this. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan, Satan left out the part, he will keep you in all your ways. See, if Satan left out that part, I immediately wonder, why would he leave that out? Because he will keep you in all your ways is important. But in order to understand Psalm 91, you need to read the whole psalm in context. The psalm of, of God is promising protection and provision for the believers. It's been called the 911 for the believers. Psalm 911, you know, call 911. Listen to, psalm, to verse 1 and 2 of, of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. And the psalm goes on to talk about the great promises that God has for the, for the believer. But over and over again, you read in that psalm that it's a conditional promises. God will do this if you do that. We must do this. And, and, and in the psalm it says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. 
but it's clear from the context that it, this is speaking of walking in the ways of the Lord. So let me put this in a simple way. Psalm 91 is simply saying, as you walk in the will of God, you don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything because God will protect you and He will not allow anything to happen to you that isn't in His perfect will for your life. But Satan here is saying to Jesus, go ahead and jump off the pinnacle here. You are Superman, you know. The angels will catch you. The Bible says so. You can do it. So Jesus says, let's bring this back into context. Because Satan was telling Jesus to test the Lord. And there's a big difference between trusting the Lord and testing the Lord. A lot of people test the Lord. A lot of people are out of God's will, doing the wrong things. And they'll say, well, you know, the Bible says he'll give his angels charge over me. And Hold on. You know, to keep you in all your ways? Well, see, that's assuming that your ways are His ways. And if your ways are not His ways, and you're breaking God's commandments, and you're living in a way that you shouldn't, then don't quote a verse that speaks of God's protection, because you may have violated them through your disobedience. Sometimes we'll go out and we'll do something that we know is wrong, and, and we'll get away with it, and on our warped, sinful mind, we rationalize, well, well, God must be letting me say, it's okay for me to do this this one time. Listen, don't ever mistake God's grace for His approval. Sometimes God graciously doesn't nail us for what we do, and He gives us a chance. And He'll knock on our heart, you know, by His Holy Spirit. Man, you need to stop. You need to stop. And we'll do it again. You need to stop. You need to stop. And He gives us chance and chance until a point comes where He says, okay, no more chances. And we reap what we've sown. He lets the repercussions take place. And then we blame God for not taking care of us. But it's all because of what we've been doing. So what this verse is saying is we need to trust the Lord, but we never want to test the Lord. Don't, don't tempt the Lord. Don't say, well, I wonder how far I can go and not get hurt. I wonder how much I can be like the world without really being in the world. Can't live that way. Instead, we need to take Jesus' example. He said, I'm not going to give in to this temptation. I know my Father is with me. I know He will protect me. I don't have to prove it. That's why He responds in verse 7. He said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And Jesus is comparing Scripture with Scripture. Take into consideration the whole counsel of God, the whole message of the Bible, not just stopping as Satan did with one isolated passage. And this brings us to the third temptation. Verse 8, we read, And again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, according to Scripture, we know that Satan was an anointed angel. He was set to guard God's throne. But instead of guarding it, he wanted to be on it, and so he fell. This Lucifer, this high-ranking angel, fell from his high and privileged position. Because of his beauty, he caused his heart to be lifted up with pride. In fact, uh, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, verse 14 says this, speaking of the devil. He said, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the, of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Lucifer, the adversary, wanted to be worshipped as God. He had eye trouble. I, 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 me, me, me. This is what I want. And the Lord said, you're out of here. Satan rebelled, took one-third of the angels with them, I believe, are now the demons that, that harass us to this day. Good news is two-thirds of them are still on our side. But one-third of them are with the devil. And there's millions and millions and millions of them. And that means he has a formidable force at his disposal. 
So Satan fell, and here he says to Jesus, just worship me. That's what he's wanted all along. Now Jesus, of course, rejects that. Look at verse 10. He says, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now what's interesting to me is that Satan said nothing about serving, just worshiping. But Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord God, and only him you shall serve. Now, Satan didn't say, I want you to serve me, just worship me. But Jesus recognized that just a moment of worship can lead to a lifetime of of service and whatever it is. It could be at the altar of pleasure, just a moment that can lead to a lifetime of service. I'm just going to try this little pleasure that the world has to offer. I'm just going to try this the little marijuana, this little drug. One time it won't hurt me, just one beer, it's not going to do anything. Yeah, I have these leftover pain pills. I'm just going to take one to take the edge off. And before you know it, you're hooked. You're addicted. How I can get more money now to buy more of what I need? How can I get more meds? What can I do to serve this addiction I have? Maybe it's materialism, which you can lead just a lifetime of serving empty pursuits. Oh, if I just had I made a little more money, if I just had this better car, this better house, you know, uh, you know, if I just man, go to the casino, man, and make some money, they've given me free chips to play with. Uh, yeah, it's got to work. But it leads to a lifetime of service. Just a moment at the altar of fornication can lead to a lifetime of regret. Fornication can mean sex before marriage, which is never blessed, something that, 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 that God approves of, even if you're planning on getting married. And then you have to deal with unwanted pregnancies or, or some disease or even AIDS. Just one moment is all it takes. Just a moment at the altar of adultery can lead to destroyed marriage, to devastating your reputation, hurting your children. That's why Jesus said you shall worship the Lord God and Him only you shall serve. Because whatever you're bowing down to at is where you're going to end up serving. But the good news is we are at the altar of Jesus Christ this morning. And we are bowing before Him. Therefore, we're serving the one true mighty God. That's who we are, not only worshiping, but also serving Him as well. But again, Satan is trying to divert Jesus away from something else. All the kingdom of the world, Satan says, I can give to you. Listen, Satan can promise you the farm. I promise it all, all to you. I'll give it to you. But you know what? He's a stinking liar. Okay? He's a deceiver. He rarely delivers anyway. And even if he got it all, it wouldn't satisfy you. But in most cases, you don't even get it all. Think about Esau. He sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. Cheap. Some people sell their lives for so little. And that's what Satan wants you to do. So Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now you may think, well, so what's the big deal? That, that doesn't seem like a... a big of a temptation. I would never worship the devil. But listen, what Satan was offering Jesus was the opportunity to gain the world without having to go to the cross. To gain the world without having people mock him. To gain the world without being beaten. To gain the world without having his back being shredded with a whip or having his beard pulled off of his face. To gain the world without that crown of, of thorns being slammed down onto his head. To gain the world without having him to take the sins of the world upon himself. I believe that Jesus knew all that awaited him. That certainly makes it a stronger temptation, a much much greater temptation. But he didn't need it. He rejected it. Father had already promised in the kingdom. Psalm 2, verse 8, we read of the Lord, Ask of me and I will give you the, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Listen, there, there, there are no shortcuts to the will of God. If we want to share in the glory, we must also share in the suffering. 
But I love the Lord's reply. So much power and authority says in verse 10, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And I, you know he was gone that moment. He was gone. Jesus' word, away with you. Listen, when it comes to temptation, we're tempted either by our own desires or, or, or the nudging of the devil. I don't think the point is to make us do the unthinkable, at least not at first. The goal is to make the unthinkable more and more reasonable. And then when it doesn't seem so bad anymore, when it seems trite and harmless, when it seems like the next logical step to have us go ahead and take that bite out of that forbidden fruit. You see, most of us, when we give in a temptation, a thought like, oh, there's that fruit I'm not supposed to eat, bite it, we've got to take a bite out of it. That's not how it works. Instead, we get curious about what it might taste like. We wonder if other people have tried it. Did they like it? Are we missing out? Isn't it unfair that they get to try something that we don't? Why should we be the only ones that's left out? In his book, Flirting with the Forbidden, author Stephen James takes the liberty to show us what the conversation might have been like there in the Garden of Eden as Eve was tempted by Satan. And he writes this, and I quote, Well, God never said you couldn't pick the fruit, did he? He just said you weren't supposed to eat it, right? Well, go on and pick it. Good. Now smell it. He never said you couldn't smell it. There's nothing wrong with smelling the fruit. There now, lick it. It's not the same as eating. It wasn't clear you weren't, you, you weren't supposed to eat it, but he never said anything about licking it, and so it goes until we take a bite. And isn't that the way temptation is? So much easier once the fruit is in your hand, once you've touched it with your tongue. Listen, until we finally admit that temptation is a reality of life, and at least to some extent that we, we are drawn to giving into it, to lick that forbidden fruit and explore what lies beyond the fence, we're going to remain vulnerable to the dark thoughts that keep trying to climb into our souls and burrow deep into our hearts. We need to understand there is a battle taking place. But again, as I said already, we already have victory. That's why we're told in, in Titus two eleven and 12, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In other words, through God's grace, we don't have to give in to temptation, no matter how appealing it may be. And this brings us to our, our third and final point, the believer's victory. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Brought him some angel food cake. Jesus was victorious over temptation, and so can we be. How? By following Jesus' example. See, Jesus stood on ground that you and I can stand on today. Because when Jesus faced Satan, he could have easily said, Look, I'm Jesus. You're not. Get lost. And he would have been gone immediately. Satan would have had to flee, but because neither say Christ is far greater and stronger than the devil. But instead, Jesus allowed these temptations to take place he went through all of this to show us that we can deal with this in the same way. I mean, he could have called upon the supernatural powers to get rid of Satan and remove him from that situation, but he doesn't. But he shows us how it's done. Why? Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He's tempted just like you and I were tempted. And Jesus is saying, I want you to watch me now how you resist temptation. I'm standing on solid ground that you can stand on, you can occupy. I'm giving you these principles that you can apply in your life. 
Listen, the secret to dealing with temptation is not to try harder, but to apply what we already know. I want to give you uh, five quick ways to deal with temptation, and then we're going to close. Number one, pray that God will deliver you from evil. First step, pray that God will deliver you from evil. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus taught his disciples to pray that God would deliver them from the evil one. I think of there in the Garden of Gethsemane when the disciples fell asleep. Jesus told them in Mark 14, 38, Keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. On our own, we are weak, and we easily get overpowered, but when we pray, we're no longer on our own. We put ourselves in touch with God's powerful Holy Spirit. Never underestimate the power of prayer in your struggle against temptation. Number two, in dealing with temptation, remove whatever leads you into sin or remove yourself from the situation that leads you to sin. Listen, every one of us here have areas of weaknesses, different areas of weaknesses. If you're on a diet now and your weakness is Krispy Kremes, don't keep driving by until you see the hot now sign light up. Oh, God wants me to have a donut. Look, the sign is lit up. No, don't drive there by there at all. In other words, identify what usually leads you away from God and then avoid those situations, avoid those activities, even avoid those people. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's in the New Living Translation. But I wonder how we might rephrase that today. If your tongue causes you to talk about people behind their back, grab some pliers and pull it out. If your ear causes you to listen to gossip, lop it off. If your foot causes you to break the speed limit, take a hacksaw to it. Ouch. If your fingers cause you to surf sleazy websites, snip them off. Man, we could apply it today. His point, take sin seriously and take whatever drastic steps are necessary to remove sin-causing things from your life. Number three, promise yourself you won't sin. I'm not going to say it'll happen, but you can promise yourself you won't sin. I think of a man named Job who, who must have struggled with lust. He made a promise to himself that he would not fantasize about the girls he met. In Job 31.1 he wrote, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a young woman. Apparently it worked because God called him in Job 2 verse 3, the finest man on all the earth, a man of integrity. So what do you struggle with? Put a name to it. Then make a promise to avoid it. Put it in writing like Job did, you know, like the TV show. You know, I will not watch this dumb TV show over and over again. Or I will not visit this website. Or I, you know, I will not hang out with those people by name. The more specific you are, the, 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 you make that covenant, the better. Then remind yourself of it. You know, maybe tell a friend so you have more accountability. Number four, tell yourself the truth about sin. You know, when we're being tempted, we rarely tell ourselves the truth about it, about temptations or the consequences of it. Oh, it's no big deal. You know, everyone else is doing it. It's not that big of a deal. You know, what's the big deal? Listen, anytime sin seems safe, watch out. Sin promises freedom, but it only brings slavery. It promises success, but brings failure. It promises life, but the wages of sin is death. So tell yourself the truth about sin. This is sin. It displeases God, and I won't do it. 
Finally, number five, when you're tempted, follow Jesus' example. Use the word of God. Listen, when Jesus, or rather when Satan said, jump off and the angels would catch you, Jesus knew the book. He said you shouldn't tempt the Lord your God. He was rightly dividing the word of truth. And we need to understand that God has given us various pieces of weaponry and our spiritual battles that we face. And you can read about them in Ephesians 6. But the only offensive weapon that we have that God has given to us is the sword. We got the helmet of salvation, you know, right? We got the, the breastplate of righteousness, you know. We have the, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of, of, of peace. We got our, our shield of faith. Now, if I'm in a battle and my opponent is coming towards me, how do I stop him? Do I throw my helmet at him? You know, do I try to beat him with my shield? Smack my sandal in his face? I got this killer sandal. No, of course not. Helmets are to protect my head, shields are to protect my body. I have one weapon that's offensive and it's called a sword. I pull out that sword and I use it. Not only deflecting blows, but, but attacking. What does the Bible say about the sword? The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's our weapon. That's what God has given us to defeat the enemy. And all we need to do is use it. It's a sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. David said in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The sad thing is, none of us unsheath our swords. We never use the Word of God. You've got to get that sword and you've got to use it. Which means that you have to develop, a, as a Christian, a good working knowledge of the Scriptures. You've got you to bring it in so you can, you can share it out. You know? Otherwise, you're going to be a casualty in battle. Again, like I said, you've got to have the information so you can and deal with it correctly. Let me ask you this morning, what shape is your spiritual sword in? Is it polished and ready to use because, man, you, you, you've studied the scriptures on a regular basis and it's been sharpened on the anvil of experience? Have you applied the truth in your life or is it rusty from a lack of experience? Or worse yet, is it dulled from disobedience? What shape is your sword in? See, Satan will do whatever he can to keep you from using your sword, to keep you away from reading God's word. In fact, D.L. Moody once said, the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. See, success or failure in the Christian life is dependent on how much of the Bible you get into your heart and mind on a regular basis and how obedient you are to it. If you neglect the study of scriptures, then your spiritual life is ultimately going to unravel because everything you need to know about God is taught in the pages of scripture. And if it's not in the Bible, then you don't need it. But you need to study it. You need to memorize it. You need to apply it in our lives. Have you memorized portions of scripture? I have passages that are so logged in my mind that I, I, I memorized when I was 21 years old in the old King James Version, you know. Thou theest, you know, I, I got them down there, but they're there and they're easy to use and, and, uh, and we need to use it. So the temptation, dealing with temptations, we, we saw that, that Satan came to Jesus and said, why are you hungry? Where's your father's provision? Jump. Do you not know that you doubt your father's protection? He said, make it happen now. Don't wait for your father's promise. And we're going to be tempted the same way. You know, tempted to deny the father's provision, to doubt the father's protection, to give up on the Lord's promises. Don't give in to them. Flee if you have to. I, I think of Joseph, you know, and Potiphar's wife. You know what a, a Potiphar is, don't you? It's for cooking. Um, but Potiphar's wife wanted to get Joseph in hot water. And she did. Because, uh, it, because Joseph fled instead of giving in to her advances. Joseph said, I will not sin against my God. 
I mean, Joseph wanted to please God more than giving in to his flesh. And that needs to be our heart as well. But there are times where you may have to flee. Second Timothy 2.22 tells us, Flee also useful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Finally, let me close with this. If other people could look into our hearts, if they had the same soul-seeing eyes that God has, that they would know the truth. We are all struggling in some area in our lives as much as they are. Everyone is. That's why we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you, but such it is common to man. But God will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but with the temptation, make a way for you to escape it, to bear it. We're all in the same boat. But as Paul encourages us all to do in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, and let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. We love the Lord. We fear the Lord. Let's live holy for Him. Resist when you can. Flee when you have to. But of all else, rely on the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Rather than seeing how close you can get to this temptation, see how close you can get to the will of God. And walk with the strength that He gives you and by the Spirit who is more powerful than your weaknesses. Finally, as we close, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never had your sin forgiven, if you're not born again, this morning, let me tell you a little bit about the devil. The Bible says that, that you have been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. In other words, you're being held hostage. Satan says you need to do this, and you have no power to defeat the enemy. You're just doing it un- unbeknownst to you. Why? Because you don't have the Spirit of God in your life directing you and leading you and guiding you. Your sin's not been forgiven. You don't have the, that victory in your life because you're not born again yet. So I would encourage you this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, don't wait any longer. God wants to give you power to defeat the enemy. He wants to give you the promise of heaven. He wants to cleanse you of all of your sin. Take away the guilt. Take away the shame. Give you new life. Make you a new creation in Christ. But all you have to do is say, God, I want my sin forgiven. I'm sorry for it. I want to be born again. If that's your desire this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, as we close, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Jesus, for being our example, that we can follow what you have done using your word to defeat our enemy. Lord, he's already defeated. We fight from victory, not for victory. And we thank you for that. The enemy was defeated at the cross, Jesus. When you went to the cross and you died for each one of our sins, what we so rightly deserved, you took upon yourself. You were dead, but then you rose from that grave, and now you offer eternal life to all those who believe. We pray right now, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to make that commitment to follow you, to be born again, they've not repented of their sin, they're they're really being led and, and held captive by the enemy. But this morning, Lord, they want to know you. They want to have the power of your Holy Spirit in their life. They want to be forgiven. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the faith to make that stand today. And the boldest to say, yes, Lord, I want you in my life. I want to be forgiven. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again. You want your sin forgiven. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray with you? This is just between you and the Lord. You want your sin forgiven. You want to be born again. You want to have this new life in Christ. If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning. Anybody at all? Father, we thank you for your love, 
your grace. We thank you for just your working in our lives. Lord, we ask for that refilling of your Holy Spirit that we might be that witness for you. Lord, we ask your blessing upon our baptism tonight, Lord, just an, an outward sign of what you've done in our lives. Lord, hold back the rain. Lord, bring many people out that we might glorify you. Oh, Lord, perhaps even the lifeguards that are there, Lord, they'd see what's going on and there'd be some that would give their lives to you as a result. Lord, whatever way you want to use it, we seek to glorify you. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for blessing us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.